Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of our pastors on staff, and we're really glad you could be with us this morning. Uh, I know many of us walk in today knowing this has been a really heavy week in the life of our nation and for uh, the community in Las Vegas as they're still reeling from the shooting occurred almost a week ago. And if you're like me, uh, you, may be, you may be just getting nervous to open your phone in the morning and wonder what notification will I, will I see next. You know, for my wife and I, uh, we heard the news Monday morning, just like many of you. Uh, we, were in, we were taking a trip to New York at the time, so we heard there. And <clears throat> a day afterward, we were uh, visiting the 9-11 uh, site. And so that was, it was really just an interesting week to be there and thinking on all that. We got to see the, the One World Tower that was constructed. Uh, we got to see uh, the memorial that was in place of the two towers and engraved all around this memorial are the names who people who lost their lives in the attacks. And so as, as my wife Paige and I, we had a chance just to sit on the bench and kind of talk because um, she was in sixth grade at the time and I remember her sharing just the fear that that brought in her life, uh, seeing these images and knowing that we lived through that. And then, and then for me, I was in high school. Um, you know, my, my teachers didn't teach that day. They just let us kind of watch the news and... Um, I remember asking a question then uh, as, a, as a teenager that I'm asking the same question 15, 16 years later now, which is in the face of, of violence and hate like this, what can we do? You know, the residents of Las Vegas, many of them, they rushed down to the Red Cross and began donating blood, and they saved a lot of lives doing that uh, because that's what they could do in that moment. <clears throat> and for us here in DuPage County, when these things happen, I think there's a question of, uh, what's my response? As I was preparing for this message, there's a, there's a couple verses uh, where Jesus gives some of his last commandments to his disciples. And really, uh, these verses, we're just going to touch on them briefly. They deserve an entire message. They, they really do. But he's giving him their la- his last words, his last commands before he's crucified. And he commands them to love one another in the same way that he has loved them. And I think in saying that, while obviously there's no silver bullet answer to when we see hate and violence in our world, one roadmap Jesus has given us to respond is to love. But that love is not general. It's not up here. It's a very specific love. It's a love that cares for your friends and your neighbors. It's a a love that pays attention when they seem off. It's It's a love that asks questions and gets to know their story and then listens with empathy and kindness. And if you're wondering where does that start, it starts in your sphere of influence. It starts with your friends. It starts with your family. It starts with your coworkers. Because in response to hate and the violence that we see in this world, the map Jesus gives us say to follow is to, is to love like he did. And so I want to I pray. I want to pray for Las Vegas and, and everyone who's still uh, hurting uh, from what happened only a week ago. I also want to pray for you. I want to pray for us this morning because I think God has an incredible truth to share with us in a passage that I think is really, really powerful. So if you join me, I want to take a moment just to pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, um, we just take a pause, a, a moment here, and we lift up the people of Las Vegas to you. We lift up the families and the friends who lost someone this week. 
We pray that your peace and your sympathy would be with those people. We pray for those who are recovering or in critical condition, God, that you would bring healing, powerful, supernatural healing to those, to those places. <clears throat> we pray for the psychological, emotional, spiritual health of everyone living there who's impacted by it, God, that your presence would be felt in a powerful and tangible way. And I pray for us here that as we figure out what is our response when we see these tragedies, God, what is our response to this kind of violence, God? Will you, give, will you help us to find who are the people that now we can, we can exercise your love in this world to? Who are you putting on our hearts to show that kind of love. Help us have that response. And as we turn our attention to this morning, we ask that you would be present in this place. We welcome you here because I know you have something really powerful to say to us this morning, God. So we give this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if uh, you'd like to follow along, we're going to start in John 21, verse 9. So you can open your Bibles to there. There's Bibles in front of you. You can use your, your mobile devices as well. And as you're finding John 21, verse 9, just to catch you up on where we've been, uh, we're in a series called Collision, where we talk about these transformational encounters that people have with Jesus throughout the book of John. And the encounter we're going to talk about today is one that has been spoken about, whether you've, you've been to church once or a thousand times, you've probably heard about it, uh, and it's one that's really commonly been misunderstood, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. So uh, if you want to read with me, we're going to start at 21, verse 9. <clears throat> when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, and he dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus came, came and he took bread, and he gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. So Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. <clears throat> so over history, this, this, this is a really powerful piece of scripture, but uh, it's, it's been preached a lot about how we kind of highlight that when Peter says he loves Jesus those three times. He uses these different Greek words for love. And it's been preached a lot, and what I heard growing up was how those are a special emphasis that we should pay attention to. But over time, scholars have come to understand that those, those interchange of the words love actually don't have a really big significance in the, in the passage. Actually, uh, it's not even really the main point. See, the main thing that Jesus is doing in this passage is he's dealing with Peter's shame. 
And I hope over the course of our time together this morning to show you how Jesus dealt with his shame and he deals with ours. Now, when we hear the word shame, we often get it confused with the word guilt. So I want to take a moment to just clarify what we mean by shame and what we mean by guilt. When I'm talking about guilt, author and researcher Brene Brown, she provides a definition that says an emotion that focuses on self-evaluation regarding behavior. The story you may tell yourself if you're feeling guilty is, I did something bad. Guilt can be a really healthy thing. Guilt tells us when we've done something that doesn't match up with our value system, and we got to correct it. Shame is an emotion that focuses on self-evaluation regarding the person or self. Not feeling worthy of love or acceptance, this person tells himself, I am bad. Notice the difference. Let me give you some examples to help bring clarity. Someone who's dealing with guilt may say, I forgot my anniversary. But when that turns to shame, it says, I'm the worst spouse for forgetting. When you're dealing with guilt, it says, I didn't text my friend on their birthday, I blew that, whereas shame says, I am an awful friend. Guilt says, I shouldn't have spoken so harshly to my kids. Shame says, my kids have a terrible parent. Guilt says, I missed that assignment at work, I blew that. Shame says, they should fire me, I'm useless here. And as a pastor... Maybe my guilt statement is sometimes saying, you know, that message didn't land with my students today. I need, to, I need to fix that. But when that turns into shame, it says, I'm not a very impactful pa pastor. My students, they hate me. And you can start to see the difference between guilt and, and shame. And shame, shame is a game changer. Shame stops us in our tracks. But there's good news. Because Peter deals with shame, and Jesus enters right into it, and he deals with it with Peter, and he offers the same thing to us. So to understand how Jesus dealt with his shame, we have to kind of understand how we got to chapter 21 in John. So I want to back up with you to John 13, and we're going to be at verse 33. And a little, a little context to this moment, it's Passover weekend, Jesus has not uh, he has not died and rose again yet. He's hours from his crucifixion. He knows this, and he's giving his last commands to his disciples, his closest followers who are going to carry on his vision for the church. It's Passover weekend, which is a, uh, a famous Jewish celebration reminding uh, the people of when God saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and then uh, welcomed them into their promised land. And so this is a big moment. Jesus is giving his final words to his closest followers and here's what he says in John 13, 33. He says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is a big moment. It may seem like he, he said love one another. That sounds great. That's a great, I, don't, I agree with that. But this was a transformational and highly controversial thing to say. Because what Jesus did is he just took hundreds of years of the Jewish religion, its history, and laws, and he condensed it into two sentences. And for the religious elite at the time, that, was a, that can be perceived as a threat to their way of operating. 
to their religion and how they were op- and how they were doing things. But for Jesus, this was just the next logical progression of what was happening. As a matter of fact, it was really summarizing what the faith was all about. It comes down to this, love one another. So he gives this monumental uh, command to his disciples, and he's around, Peter is there included in all of this, and as they're sitting listening, one of his disciples, Peter, he responds by saying, Lord, where are you going? And what a curious response to something that missed the boat entirely. I mean, this is like, you don't have to answer this, it's kind of rhetorical, but do you have a friend in your life who you give a story to, and as you're getting kind of to the, to the climax of the story, to the, to the main point, uh, and, and you tell it, and it's funny, or it's a big spot, and they're just like, wait, what, did, what was their street name? Or, I think you got the number wrong. Or, they're just hung up on these details, and you're just annoyed, because you're like, that's not the point of the story. You missed it. That's Peter in this moment. Jesus is, Jesus is saying, are you serious? I just love one another. I just gave you this, and you're telling me you're stuck on where I'm going. And then Peter doubles down on that, and he's like, I will go wherever you go. I'm sticking by you. And Jesus calls his bluff, and he says, before the rooster crows tonight, you will deny me three times. So that moves us to, to John 18. Some things happen. We get to John 18, and I'm not going to read anything in John 18, but I want to share a little bit of what happened because it's, it's not a big secret. Peter does indeed deny Jesus three times that evening. The first of his denials, he's, he's trailing behind Jesus in the courtyard, and a, and a servant girl asks, hey, are you one of his disciples? And he says no, and then he comes And he warms his hands on this cold night around the girl, around the soldiers, all these people who are not for Jesus. He comes and he warms his hands on what John describes as a charcoal fire. And he spends time warming himself around the people who he denies Jesus in front of. And John, because he is a brilliant writer, does something really clever. He doesn't say it out loud, but he expects us to kind of pick it up as we're reading. Is that how he arranges this scene in John 18 is he starts with Peter's first denial. And then it goes uh, goes to Jesus in front of the religious elite, uh, basically defending himself, proclaiming that he is proclaiming God's kingdom. And then it goes to Peter, and he starts uh, his second and third denial— And then it goes back to Jesus, again, proclaiming the kingdom. And the dichotomy is clear. John is showing us the cowardice of Peter in contrast to the courage that Jesus shows as he's about to go on the cross. And and Luke, you know, John's gospel, it ends with just saying the rooster crowed, and that was kind of the end of the scene. In Luke's gospel, he takes a moment to add that Uh, Peter wept bitterly when he heard the rooster crow a third time. So this is... This is a monumental moment because this is where Peter experiences shame. And if we, had a mo- if we had time to go through John and show all the ways that Peter is dealing with shame, we could prove it even more. But it doesn't take a lot of imagination to guess that he's not dealing with guilt here. This is not a guilty conscience. This isn't, I did something bad. He denied the living Christ three times. And you can imagine the story in his head at this moment is, I'm not worthy of love or acceptance from Jesus. How could I be? It's not hard to imagine his shame. After this, 
Jesus does die on the cross. He rises from the dead. And days later, he appears to his disciples. And on the third time, he appears to them on the shores of the sea, which is where we pick up on John 21, and we're all caught up. And as we go back to that, it's important to note that Peter at this point needed redemption. Because in refusing to be affiliated with Jesus, whether it was due to fear of his physical safety, ridicule, social status, maybe the realization that he couldn't love in the way that Jesus had commanded, Peter was wrestling with something that was much more serious than guilt. And in 21, we're going to find out just how Jesus decided to deal with that shame. So as we're caught back up to what we read earlier, you may have already noticed some things that are similar about John 21, and then some of the things we read in John 13, some of what I summarized in John 18. So part of the setting is that we have the same people around, right? John 13, it was... uh, Peter made his original proclamation that he was going to follow Jesus in front of the disciples and in front of Jesus. And so Jesus brings the band back together in John 21. They're all there. You may have also noticed that Jesus started a fire. As a matter of fact, John uses the same word for both the fire that Peter first denied Jesus in front of and the fire that Jesus makes in John 21, and it's anthracia. It's a, it's a fire of coals. It's a charcoal fire, essentially. I don't know if you know this, but smell is your strongest sense that's tied to memory. A smell is your best chance to connect something to a memory. Um, and for me, when I smell charcoal fire, I, smell, I, I think of uh, summer, I think of Chicago hot dogs, I think of grilling burgers, uh, I think of being around friends. But my guess is Peter had a very different memory come to mind. See, the smell of that charcoal fire brought back that night of Jesus' trial. Maybe images of Jesus' crucifixion, but most of all, it brought him back to that moment where he first denied Jesus on that cold night. And then there's something else that's interesting about John 21. It's that when, when, when Jesus and Peter go back and forth, Jesus asks Peter if he loves him three times. That seems odd. Jesus already has access to that information. In ways we can't explain, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He rose from the dead. He knows Peter's heart and his mind. He has access to that information. Why does he ask Peter if he loves him? And why especially does he do it a third time if he already knows all this? And suddenly, as we start to put together the pieces, it becomes, becomes clear. Jesus is recreating the scene of the crime for Peter. He brings him back. He brings him back with his disciples and in front of him where he made the original commitment. He creates the charcoal fire where he first denied Jesus. And then he asks him three times if he loves them. Three affirmations of Peter's love correspond to the three denials that Peter gave. And in doing this, the message becomes clear to Peter that Jesus is redeeming him. Jesus is making him whole. Jesus is giving him a chance to make right the wrong that he had. And in doing so, Jesus is meeting him right in the midst of his most shameful parts of his life. And that's what Jesus does. He goes where the shame is deepest. He goes to the places that make us feel like we're horrible husbands, horrible wives, horrible brothers and sisters, horrible coworkers, horrible friends. 
the places we want no one to see, the places that we let shame have its hold on, he goes to those very places because he's not, he's not scared of it. He won't look at it and say, no, you're right, you are too messy for me. I don't want anything to do with that. He goes right to those spots, and he does his work. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't run from our most shameful spots. He enters into them. So as I observe the interaction between Jesus and Peter, I think there are three things that we can take away from how Jesus dealt with Peter's shame, but also how he deals with ours. The first one is this, is that we have to name it. We have to name it. Peter, you know, at the end of the third time he says, I love you, uh, he says he was grieved. And at first glance, when you read that, it may feel like he was grieved because, uh, because Jesus asked him a third time. So Jesus didn't believe him, and he's grieved because he has to explain it again. But that's not it. He's grieving in that moment, and it's a healthy grieving because he's realizing his shame. He realizes he's in this moment where he's being redeemed from the three times he denied Jesus. And that third time, it's, it's hitting him. And in a healthy grieving, in a way that happens when you realize you've done something wrong but are being forgiven for it, that's what's happening to Peter. And he allows Jesus in that space just as we have to allow Jesus to do the same. But we, we can't deal with it unless we actually name what it is. The second thing is we have to speak it out loud. Brene Brown uh, says this about keeping shame quiet. She says, by keeping quiet, your shame will grow exponentially. It will creep into every corner and every crevice of your life. The antidote is empathy. By talking about your shame with a friend who expresses empathy, the painful feeling cannot survive. Shame cannot survive being spoken. See, shame has a, has a grip on us. Shame stops you from becoming all that God has called you to, to be. Shame puts stories in your head that aren't true. Shame stops you in your tracks. And you think, you, you think about it and you think shame is, the hiding it is the better move, but it actually just makes it grow stronger. But when we speak shame out loud, when we talk about it, it loses its power. Now, we don't just talk about it to anybody. We talk about it in safe places with people we trust. That's why at Parkview, we talk about life groups and relationships. And these aren't just values that we kind of just, just say every week to, just to say them. They're things we really believe. Because we believe in the safety of close relationships, in the safety of, of, of a life group, in the safety with friends who you can trust, who respond with empathy and care. You can share the truths about those shames that have got a hold of you. And in doing so, shame loses its power. There's one last thing that I think we can learn from Jesus' interaction with Peter and dealing with his shame, and it's that we have to accept the invitation that Jesus gives us, accept Jesus' invitation. See, what's interesting about the end of the whole, uh, the whole dialogue between Jesus and Peter is that Peter says, I love you a third time, and Jesus doesn't go, attaboy, <laughs> great job. Doesn't pat him on the back, doesn't give him a pep talk. He, the very next thing says, feed my sheep. He gives Peter a new vocation. And when I talk about vocation, I'm not talking about the vocation, the eight to five that 
that you and I may normally talk about. When I say vocation, I mean new purpose, a new lease on life. He gives him new direction. That's, that's what we mean by vocation. And he gives that to Peter. He doesn't just, he doesn't stay at, your, at dealing with his shame. He then invites him into something new. I had a, I had a professor at seminary who, when he was... Um, when he would be talking about a passage, but he was no longer um, interpreting it, he was just kind of giving his own thoughts about it. He would say, I'm going to take my theological cap off, and I'm going to put my curious guy hat on. Um, and when we graduated, we gave him a hat that literally said curious guy, so he could do that all the time. And, uh, and so I'm going to put my curious guy hat on for a moment. Because I noticed something that was really interesting in John 21. You know, I've been calling Peter... By his name, Peter. But you may have noticed at this point that in John 21, Jesus never calls him Peter. He calls him Simon. You see, way back earlier in the Gospels, when he first meets Simon on the, on the shores of the sea, because he was a fisherman, that's where he first called him in the ministry. That's where he first called him to be a disciple. He brought him in, and then he changed his name. He changed it from Simon to Cephas, which means Peter, which, is, uh, which means the rock. Because Peter was going to be one of the foundational people with which the church would grow, with which Jesus' message would spread to the world. But when he's talking to Peter, he calls him Simon. Why does he do that? And because Jesus typically doesn't do things by accident, I think something really powerful is happening. See, he's recreating this scene, right? He brings them back to the shores of the sea where he first saw him. He brings them back around his disciples where he first made the commitment to follow Jesus. He creates this charcoal fire where he first denied Jesus. And then he does the three, the three, uh, three I love yous to contradict the, the three denials. And you start to feel it. Jesus... Jesus is alluding back to his old life. Every time he says Simon, it's like a little jab that says, don't be Simon. Don't go back to where I found you. Be Peter. Peter is what I've called you to. I've called you to something better. Simon, do you love me? Don't be Simon. Don't, don't go back and deny me. Don't go back to the life you had before. I've given you something better. Because Jesus doesn't just save us from something bad. He invites us into something good. And every time he calls him Simon, it's a reminder to Peter, that's not my life anymore. There's something better over here as Peter. And that same invitation, that same invitation to accept this new life, this new vocation, this new purpose exists for us today as it did for Peter hundreds of years ago. See, we want to let Jesus do what he does best, which is reveal and deal with our shame, but we can feel confident in knowing he doesn't stop there. He also does for us what he did for Peter. He gives us a new vocation, a new way of living. And the things in our life that we believe Jesus wants no part of, the things that we don't want him to see, the things that we say, no, I'm too messy for that, there's no way he could love me, those are the very parts of our lives that Jesus wants to come and he wants to heal and he wants to make new. Today, uh, it's fitting 
that we're going we're gonna to take communion together. And that in, in, 13, in chapter 13, when the disciples and Peter and Jesus are together, they, they take communion. And the, and the juice and the matzah that, that we take together, those are reminders of the blood and the body that Jesus gave on the cross for our sins. But as we take communion today, and our band's going to come up, and we're going to play some songs, and we're going to do that together, I want to invite you to consider something. That as you take communion and you, and you take the elements and you, and you remember what Jesus did. I want you guys to remember that his death on the cross allowed two things. It allowed him to deal with our shame. Because of, because of what he did, we, we, that doesn't have to have a hold of us. We don't, have to, we don't have to combine our guilt with our identity and mix those two together. Jesus dealt with that on the cross. But he doesn't stop there. He invites us into a new way of living. And as, as we take communion today, I think this is an awesome opportunity to do some business with God. That those things that, that you've been holding on to, the things you don't want to give up, the things you're scared of what someone will think or, think or say about, maybe this is your opportunity to name it. To say it. God, here is... Here's my shame that I need you to deal with. That's the start. That's where it begins. And so in a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And uh, when I'm done, uh, our, our band will sing a couple songs. And in every corner of the room, we have a communion station. And um, it's, it's a little chaotic as you go and are walking through the aisles to get in. It's a good representation of the fact that, you know what? Life is a little bit chaotic and Jesus meets us in the mess, doesn't he? <laughs> And so as you, as you feel called, you can go, you can grab the elements, and you can take them as, as you feel inclined. And, and if, you're, if you're here and you can't get to them, raise your hand because we have uh, our ushers will bring them to you. But I hope you don't miss this moment to do some business with God. So let me pray for you guys, and then we'll start communion. Heavenly Father, uh, Thank you that we get a chance like this to tangibly remember what was done for us. The blood that was shed, the body that was broken for, you, for our sins so that this world could know what your kingdom is all about. And today I imagine there are, there are individuals in this room who have experience shame in their life that it might be time for you to do some business with them with God. To name that shame. Because in your death on the cross, we can be forgiven. We can move on from those things. They don't have to have a hold. But in your resurrection, we know we get to have new life, new vocation, new purpose as Peter did. And so we give this time to you. We pray that you would be so present here. We welcome you here in this space, God. And we pray you would do something great. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Uh, I know we talked 
talked a lot, a lot. And if, as you've this been stirring in you, uh, something that you want to talk about or you want prayer for, no, we're going to have prayer counselors here uh, afterward, just at the front that you can come and talk to. Um, Next week, we'd love for you to join us again. We're going to continue our uh, collision series, uh, but also we have baptisms next week. So you're not going to miss it. it. It's going to be a party um, and a great celebration. So thank you guys for uh, being here this morning. Let me pray for you, and, uh, and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for being here. Thank you for being present in this moment. Thank you for your work on the cross that gives us new life. We pray that we would live as people with new life as we exit these doors. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Take care.